What if you knew today exactly what was going to happen tomorrow? Imagine, what, what, what if you knew today that tomorrow you would certainly have enough money? Would that change the way that you feel? Would that change the way that you went about generosity? Would that change the way that, that you sleep and the way that you rest? Would you, would you be able to, to put down some anxiety and put down some worry? Like maybe you couldn't buy a luxury car or a horse farm, but if you just knew that everything that you were going to need was going to be there and provided for you, would you be able to rest differently than you are today? Some of you right now, you're going through the very worst moment of your whole life. You're living from adrenaline to adrenaline. You wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning, and as soon as your eyes open, you hit an instant hit of adrenaline. You try to go to sleep late into the night, and as you lay there, your mind racing, adrenaline still pulsating through your veins. And you're in a season in which it would be very easy for you to think that there is no hope, that there is no other side to this. But what if today, what if today you could be certain, you could be certain that one day you would look back on this awful season and be glad that you experienced it? What if you could, be, what if you could know for certain that one day you would look back on this season and know that God was working through this unbearable season to get you closer to where you need to be, to shape you more into who you knew who you're supposed to be. Would you be able to rest better? Would you live differently? Would you live with a greater freedom than you have right now? In fact, this is the Christian privilege. Christians have lived with the privileged perspective of knowing what the future holds. We don't know all of the ins and outs, and we don't know all of, the, all of the ups and downs, and we don't know all of the details, but what we know is how the story ends. We know how the story ends. We have the Word of God and the promises of God that assure us that regardless of what we're facing and regardless of what may come this day, that the Lord will provide for us and the Lord will work in us and that the Lord is bringing all of these things together for a glorious conclusion. The book of Genesis is written by Moses and he's writing down the, the history of his people and, they're, and, and he's presenting it to them while they're wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And so you can imagine as, as they come out of Egypt and they go into the wilderness and they're living day to day, hand to mouth, just in what God would provide for them. How easily it would be for their hearts to wander. How easily it would be for their minds to begin to, to spiral out of control. And so one of the main reasons that Moses is writing and giving them the, the stories of their heritage is so that they can see how God has worked in the past and how God has assured them to work into the future. So he goes back, so we can go back even today, 4,000 years, and we can see how God has worked then and be able to live confidently and know how God is going to work today so that we might live with greater boldness so that we might live with greater calm, so that we might live with greater joy. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me now to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25. In Genesis 25, we have the, the lineage of both uh, Ishmael and Isaac. We're going to pick up specifically with that of Isaac. We're going to look at verse 19. Genesis chapter 25, verse 19, and we're going to read to the end of the chapter. 
It says this, it says, These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? And so she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so that his name is called Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted or I am famished. Therefore, he, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You know, our lives are at a standstill right now, but our minds surely aren't. In fact, I find it true in my life that when, the more still I am physically, the more I tend to race mentally. That very often when I sit with nothing to do, that's the times in which I'm overcome with anxiety. Or that, those are the times in which I begin to go through all of the things that are wrong and all the things that I don't like and all the things that I'm struggling with. And so during this quarantine, I, I believe that it was necessary for us uh, physically, but I am truly concerned of what it's going to mean to us mentally, emotionally, spiritually. That there are many of us right now that are being locked together and we don't know what to do with our hands and our minds are, are beginning to race. And so I wonder, what is a Christian to do in a time like that? What is a Christian to do in a time like that? I think if we were to go to the world, the world would suggest to us that we should empty our minds. We should get our minds as empty as they can be. Or, or maybe the, mind would say, or the world would say we should occupy our minds. We, we should go and we should get, be, be as busy as we can be and try to distract ourselves in some form of self-medication. But I think the response for the Christian is different than that. I think the response for the Christian is different than that. That the Christian doesn't try to empty his mind. The Christian tries to fill his mind. He tries to fill his mind, that is, with the story of God. With God's story and God's promises and God's assurances. That we go back and we begin to see how God has worked from one generation to the next generation to the next generation. And seeing how God has worked from one generation to the next, we can find ourselves assured in how God is working in our generation. How God is working in our, in our day. And I think actually that's what we see here in Genesis 25. 
I think one of the reasons that Moses is going back and he's telling the story of Jacob and Esau, the sons of Isaac, is he is wanting us to have these assuring reminders from God's story. And that's what I want us to have this morning. I want us to, to look at our text and I want us to have some assuring reminders from God's story for our day. Some things with which we can fill our minds when we don't really know what else to think about or where else to go. First, I want you to see that God's story was written before us. God's story was written before us. You know, God doesn't have a beginning, but we do. There was a time in which we weren't. That's why Genesis 1 opens up with, in the beginning. God was already there. God was, had already, uh, God was already in existence. God was already in perfect hum, uh, harmony and perfect community, but we didn't yet exist. And so God comes and he begins to initiate time. And what becomes clear in Genesis 1 is the same thing that becomes clear over all of Scripture is that there is a story that is unfolding which God has already written. This is why Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 is able to talk about how we have been chosen before the foundations of the earth. That before the foundations of the earth, God has already willed his story true. God has already written out the days of this creation. God has already written out his redemptive narrative, the, the song that will be on the lips of his people. And so time and again... God would go and he would use this as a reminder for his frightened people. That his people would be dismayed and his people would be discouraged and his people would frankly be in rebellion and in sin and God would go to them and he would use this as a means of encouraging them, of calling them back to faith, of calling them back to faithfulness, of calling them back to a calmer, more peaceful, more faithful life. This is why he says through his prophet Isaiah, I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. That God has written this story so that his saving, redeeming character is revealed incrementally until ultimately all of creation has been recreated, except this time recreated with the song of redemption on its lips. And that's what the promise of Abraham is about. That's what the promise of Abraham is about. It is a promise given to a, a, a sinful man by the favor and grace and kindness of God for the future. For the future. In fact, when, when Abraham receives the promise, it takes him 25 years to even see the first step of it unveiled in the birth of his son Isaac. It's a story that won't find its ultimate fulfillment for thousands of years until the, until the coming of Christ and the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. In fact, it won't find its most full uh, fulfillment until the return of Christ when all of the nations have come together in the, as the seed of Abraham to bless one another and to sing, worthy is the Lamb. That it is a promise given in one generation that shows that God has already written the story for the future generations. That God has already written the redemption narrative that is to come to bear. And so it is revealing for us the character of God. It is revealing to us the story of God. It is revealing to us one step at a time who God is, who we are, and how it all fits together. And so we come to chapter 25, and the promise is already in trouble again. We're only in the promise's second generation. You realize that? Only in the second generation. And already, we see the promise in trouble again. Remember how it was in trouble before? That God told Abraham that through his offspring, he would be a mighty nation. And that nation would be a blessing to all nations, except, except Abraham's wife was barren. 
I wonder how many nights, I wonder how many nights Abraham laid awake at night wondering how a God so great could give a promise so precious to a man with a barren wife. And do you know what God does? God doesn't just do that one time. He does it twice. He does it twice. It's like God adding an exclamation point to the story. It's like God bringing to bear the same realities and the same truths yet again. That not only is Abraham's wife Sarah barren, but Isaac, Abraham's son, his wife, Rebekah, she is also barren. And so Isaac begins to pray, and Isaac begins to seek the Lord, and he prays from the age of 40 all the way to the age of 60, 20 years of prayer. Now, I wonder, why would God establish his people in such a manner as that? Why would God establish the very people that were to make him known to all the world this way? Infertility seems like a cruel and painful path for God to start a nation. But the people of God weren't to be naturally conceived. The people of God weren't to be naturally born. God's people are a miraculous people conceived by his making, not man's. And that is then and that is now. That the people of God are born miraculous by the will of God, by the power of God, by the, by the call of God. See, what would set apart the Hebrews was not how great Abraham was. What would set apart the Hebrews was not how great Isaac was. What would set apart the Hebrews was not some remarkable fertility that would enable them to become a great nation. What would set apart the Hebrews was the greatness of their God. The greatness of his miraculous power abiding with them and providing for them and protecting them and delivering them and seeing his promise move forward from one generation to the next, not by their ingenuity, not by their ability, but by his own superintending sovereign hand, that God would see to it that his promises were held true, that God would see to it that his word was fulfilled. And it was a reminder to them of ownership. It was a reminder to them of who exactly was the potter and who it was that was the clay, who it was that was the maker and who it was that was the maid. It was a reminder of his own lordship that they could not keep these promises on their own, that they could not move forward in faithfulness from one generation to the next on their own. Their only hope, their only chance was that God, the potter, the maker, the creator, the Lord, the king, that he would do it. So you might expect that a pregnancy so miraculously given would move from cute little baby bump to second trimester glow to smooth delivery in the end, right? Except it's the exact opposite that takes place. In fact, Rebecca, she describes her pregnancy as though there is a war within her, a war within her womb. That, that it's as though her, her child has declared war against her and there's this fighting and this battle that's going on inside of her so much so that she's almost like, I, I just throw up my hands. I would almost rather not be pregnant. I would almost rather not be alive than have to go through the anguish that I'm experiencing right now, to go through the suffering that I know right now. And so she get, takes and she, she goes to the Lord. And what the Lord says to her must have stopped her dead in her tracks. Now you have to remember, like this predates 4D, 4D sonograms, right? I mean, 
they don't know what type of what, what the gender is. They don't know how many there are. They don't know how well things are going. They don't know any of that. The, the first thing they know about their baby is when they're holding their baby in their arms. That's when they know if it's a boy or a girl. That's when they know if they're well or not. That's when they know if they're twins or not, right? And so God comes to Rebecca and he gives her an insight that is unusual for the day. And he says, not only are you going to give birth to a son, you're going to give birth to two sons. You're going to give birth to, to twins, but those twins are going to live in a life of conflict with one another. In fact, you're going to give birth not just to two boys, but to two nations. That each of those boys are going to be the fathers of, of nations of their own. And those nations are going to be in constant tension with one another. Those nations are going to be in constant conflict with one another. And the younger is going to rule over the older. The stronger, the weaker is going to rule over the stronger. That is, you're going to have two sons, but you're only going to have one son of the promise. You're only going to have one son that is going to carry forward the promise of God from this generation to the next. That, a, that, that Isaac is going to have two boys genetically, but he's only going to have one son of his, that is going to be his heir, that's going to receive from him his blessing and his birthright. And it's interesting. It's interesting because the writer is going to great pains to let us see that this is before they've ever made a decision. That, that this is, that there is not one child that is moral and one child that is immoral. There is not one child that is good and one child that is bad. That there is not one child that is worthy and the other child that is unworthy. Both of them are there and both of them have yet to make their first moral distinction or their first moral decision. That neither of them have done anything good nor bad. Yet God says, God says that the younger is going to rule over the older. That, that they're not both going to be a part of the same nation. They're not both going to be a part of the same promise. In fact, they're going to be a part of two different. And one is going to know the blessings of the promise and the other is going to know the condemnation that means to be separated from the promise of God. And so you can imagine being in Rebecca's shoes. It is an assuring, unnerving oracle that she's just received. It's both a promise and it's a curse. That on one hand, she can rejoice that God has kept his word, that God's promise is going to advance, that, that yet another generation is going to come to pass. And yet at the same time, a mother's heart grieving that one of her sons, one of her sons is going to be ruled over. One of her sons is going to, to know, not know what it is to, to experience the fullness of what would seem to be his birthright as the son of Isaac, as the eldest son of Isaac. Now maybe you're wondering, how in the world is that intended to encourage Rebecca? And maybe even more pointed than that, how in the world is that intended to encourage us today? You see, here's the thing. Here's what we see. God has a plan and his plan will come to pass. God has a plan and his plan will come to pass. That, that he isn't just making all of this up as, it, as he goes along. No, he is unveiling the glory of his story. And though we can't ever understand every in and out, what we can be certain of is that all of his people will look back on his promises and his story and their testimonies, and they will call it as excruciating as it might have been, as painful as it might have been, they will call it wonderful. See, God's plan 
includes painful realities but will land on a wonderful conclusion. God's plan includes painful realities but will land on a wonderful conclusion. In fact, that is exactly what we celebrate on Easter, isn't it? On Easter Sunday, we celebrate the excruciating plan of God. The excruciating plan of God. Imagine the disciples' reaction. When Jesus looks to them and he says, I am to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. Imagine the reactions in that room. I bet the way that you would describe it is the exact same way that you would, you would describe Rebecca's reaction on the day that she receives the oracle of the Lord. That it was a, an assuring, unnerving promise that it seemed as though both a promise and a curse they thought they're going to follow Jesus to the throne and Jesus says you're not going to follow me to the throne until first you have followed me all the way to the cross but see Jesus said I will be mocked and I will be flogged and I will be crucified but in three days I will rise the conclusion has already been written from the beginning that the father has written the plan and he's already written the period on the last sentence that he will be raised but Jesus Jesus was crucified already certain of the resurrection that Jesus died with a certain future and so today we live certain we live certain that the end is coming and that the end is coming in exactly the way that God has said that it will come because God has already written the end from the beginning you see God's story doesn't depend on us that's the next assurance I want you to have. That, that, that's the next reminder I want you to, to wrestle with. God's story doesn't depend on us. God isn't just the main character of his story. God is the writer and God is the director too. And that's how Paul interprets it. That's how Paul interprets this specific passage. That Paul interprets this passage to point us to the sovereign lordship of our heavenly father. That Paul interprets this passage to point us forward to God's might and God's superintending over all of circumstances and God's trustworthiness in that. Would you turn with me now to Romans chapter 9? I want you to see this. Romans chapter 9. We're going to begin in verse 6, we're going to read to verse 13, and then I want to talk about verse 14 and 15 in just a second. Verse 6 says this, But it is not as though the word of God is filled. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But, though, but through Christ shall your offspring, but through Isaac, I'm sorry, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Whoa, right? Whoa. What a penetrating passage of scripture. What a, what a difficult thing for us to, to wrestle with. As, as Paul is here looking to Jacob and Esau and saying, this is an illustration, this is a demonstration of the sovereignty of God, of the lordship of God. 
And it's a shocking passage. It's jarring to our bones when we read something that Paul actually is, is quoting from Malachi chapter 1 when he says, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. See, it's critical. It's critical, critical to understanding for us to understand what God is showing us here. That God's salvation is not based upon human rules of eligibility. That's what he's wanting Israel to understand. See, all of Israel believed that because they were born with the genetics of Abraham, that they were considered sons of Abraham. So it was really irrelevant how they lived. It was irrelevant what they ultimately did. They believed that because they were the elect under the genetic code of Abraham, this ethnic people, that they would be brought in to enjoy the fullness of God's promises. And what Paul is showing them is that that has nothing to do with it. That has nothing to do with it. That you can have the genetic code of Abraham and not be a son of Abraham, not be the seed of Abraham, not be the offspring of Abraham. That you can have the genetic code of Abraham and be a son of the flesh rather than a son, a child of the promise. That you can take the human rules for eligibility, those rules that say this is what makes sense, this is what is logical in our minds, based upon who you are, based upon your heritage, based upon what you've done, based upon what you've accomplished, and you can throw those things out the window because God is not building his people like that. God's people are a people miraculously born. God's people are a people miraculously made. So salvation is no one's birthright. Salvation is no one's birthright. You see, there was a, a, a common practice in the ancient Near East, a, a practice that would have, would have made its way among the Hebrews. In fact, among many of the cultures, it was codified in law that the oldest son, that the eldest son was the heir of his father, that the eldest son received the birthright the blessing of his father. So the majority of his property, the majority of his things, the majority of his prominence, the majority of his, all of these things would be handed down from the father down to his eldest son. And so when we read the, the Old Testament narrative, it seems as though Ishmael, Ishmael, he is the oldest son of Abraham. And so it seems as though Ishmael ought to be the son of the promise. He ought to be the one that God uses to move the, the promise down one generation. But God says it's not going to be Ishmael. It's not going to be a, a, a man born illegitimately to Hagar. It instead is going to be the son that is miraculously given to the barren wife, Sarah. Isaac, the younger son, he will be your heir. He will be the son of problems. And you might say, well, that makes sense to me. That makes sense to me until it goes to the next generation, right? And then you have Isaac, the son of promise, and he has a son with his legitimate wife. He has two sons, Esau and Jacob. And Esau, Esau should be the heir. Esau should be the son of the promise. Esau should be the one that is handed through whom the promise moves down from one generation to the next, except God says, Esau, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Jacob, the younger, the, the son that doesn't make sense, the son that appears weaker, the son that appears slower, the son that appears smaller, that son, that son is going to be my remnant, that son is going to be my seed, that is the son that is going to pass down from one generation to the next. You see, the sons of Abraham, the true sons of Abraham, those that are saved, those that will be a part of the promise are not those that are born with his genetic code. It is those whose faith has been credited to them as righteousness. Those that have put their hope and put their, their joy and banked their future on the promise. See, you might be born into a Christian family. 
You might mark Christian on your census form. You might tell everybody that you're a Christian. You might raise your hand when someone asks if, if you are a Christian or if you believe in Jesus. You may have been baptized. You may have filled out all the paperwork of the church. But let me tell you, if you don't love God, if you don't love God, if you don't hunger for God, if you don't long for God, if you don't put your hope in God, if you don't, it doesn't bother you when you rebel against God, you are not a Christian regardless of your heritage, regardless of your upbringing, regardless of who you believe that you are. You are not a child of the promise because your hope is still in yourself. Your hope is still in your inheritance. So to every Jew that would say, of course, of course, I am a son of the promise. I am a son of Abraham. Paul is reminding us that what God is showing us is so was Ishmael and so was Esau. That doesn't matter. Is your faith, is your faith in Christ? Is your faith in the promise? Is your faith in the provision that God has made? And salvation is no one's compensation. Salvation is no one's birthright and salvation is no one's compensation. So maybe you'd say, well, it must have been that Jacob was going to be just a better dude, right? It must have been because Jacob was going to be a more moral man, a more ethical man. That, that Jacob was going to be a man that lived in, in greater and clearer obedience unto the Lord. Until you read the story, right? <laughs> Until you read the story. That in fact, in fact, what we see is Paul pointing out that though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, that God's plan for Jacob and God's plan for Esau preceded him. And God's plan for us and God's plan for this day and God's plan for this pandemic and God's plan for this church, it precedes us. It was written before us. It was already there before we were. In the beginning was God. And in the beginning was the will of God. And in the beginning was the plan of God. And unfolding through the big story, it comes. So before they had done anything morally, before they had made any moral decisions, before they had taken any decisive action on their relationship with God, their thoughts of God. God says it will be Jacob that will rule over Esau. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. So he isn't compensating. He isn't compensating Jacob from being good and he's, he's instead planning to rescue Jacob from himself. That what we're going to see, in fact, is that Jacob doesn't do anything good until God wrestles Jacob down to the ground and transforms Jacob into somebody new. Until God completely changes Jacob's entire identity. There is nothing redeemable. There is nothing good in Jacob whatsoever. So maybe you would say, well, well maybe God said this because he foreknew or foresaw what was going to come around the bend. He foresaw a faithfulness in Jacob. He foresaw what Jacob would say and what Jacob would do and what Jacob would believe, except, except I think the entirety of the narrative is actually pushing back on that exact thought. The entirety of the narrative is pushing back on that thought. The very first action that we have of Jacob's life is an act of aggression toward his brother. That even as an infant, to show the corruption of the flesh, he reaches up out of the womb and takes hold of his brother's ankle, unprovoked. 
The very next thing that we see, the first story of Jacob and Esau that we read is, is Jacob manipulating his brother in a conniving way out of his own birthright. We see him deceiving his fathers that he might receive the blessing on his father's deathbed rather than his brother. Everything that we see about this part of Jacob's life is immoral. In fact, we might even say that Esau is the more gracious man. Esau forgives his brother later on. Esau relents in his wrath against his brother. Esau is the one that is constantly being pursued and attacked, even though, even though he is all completely unprovoked. So Paul anticipates. He anticipates what we're going to say because it's probably what he feels. He anticipates the emotions that this will bring up into us and, and the questions that this will bring into our minds when he writes verses 14 and 15. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. He says, does it come into your mind that this is unfair? Does it come into your mind that this is unjust? Does it come into your mind that this is irrational? Does it come into your, to your mind that, that this, this seems out of a line of, of everything that we would say in, in terms of, of what is sensible, in, in terms of, of how God ought to operate? Does it bring all of those things into your mind? And he says, this isn't about justice at all. This isn't about justice at all. But the hatred of Esau isn't so much hatred for malice toward Esau as it is a lavish love that is so great for Jacob that it looks like hatred in comparison. That this isn't about justice, this is about mercy. That justice says, condemn them all. Condemn them all. Mercy says, I will redeem a remnant to know me and love me and receive from me against all odds and against all of nature. That, that, that you're talking about justice, you're talking about what is right, you're talking about what is fair, and what is right and just and fair is the condemnation of every sinner. And so he responds to the question about, of justice with a response of mercy. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. You see, it isn't unjust. It isn't unjust to find one family in the midst of many and provide Christmas gifts and a meal for them. It isn't unjust to cancel the debt of a single mother, even though others will pay, will, will, with debt will still pay. It isn't unjust to adopt an orphan and bring them off the streets and bring them into your house to love and to enjoy holidays and an inheritance from you. No, it is wonderfully, powerfully, lavishly merciful. Imagine the Israelites. These are the very children of Jacob. Jacob's name is about to change to Israel. So imagine his descendants, his direct descendants, wandering through the desert. They're there and they're thirsty and they're hungry and they're tired and they're frustrated. They're, they're afraid of what can come. And it appears to them yet again, like it does with the second barren woman, that the promise is in trouble yet again. And there they are, and Moses is trying to reassure them, and Moses is trying to tell them of, of how they can keep pressing on in their confidence and their trust in the Lord. But they're wondering, they're wondering, is God really trustworthy? Has God forsaken his promise to us? Has God forsaken the good news for us? Has God removed his hand of protection? Has God withdrawn his provision from us? And he tells them the story. He tells them the story. That is, he tells them the story of grace. 
He tells them that they are the chosen people of Almighty God with a heritage of promise keeping from the hand of God. He goes to Jacob. Jacob the deceiver. Jacob the corrupt one. Jacob the one that is unworthy of all of the goodness of God. And he points to Jacob and they remember it comes into their mind all of the faithfulness that they have heard that has been passed down from Jacob and to his sons and then to them. And they are reminded that God doesn't disinherit his children. God doesn't disinherit his children. See, this is what election teaches. This is what the doctrine of election that, that so wigs so many of us out is all about. It teaches us assurance. It's assurance that God's story doesn't depend on us. We can't ruin the will of God. Praise God. We can't ruin the will of God because if I could, I would. We can't lose the grace of God because you cannot lose that which has been freely given to you. You are the elect. You are secured. You are assured. The promise will hold firm. The promise will hold fast. You are in the grip of your Father and He will hold on to you even when you want to let go of everything. Paul writes, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Your salvation is miraculous. Your salvation is not about you. Your salvation is about the keeping love. Almighty power and grace of our Lord. And so your salvation is as secure as His covenant. Your salvation is as secure as His unshakable love. Your salvation is as secure as His unwavering faithfulness, not your, not your hot and cold, up and down unfaithfulness. But that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that we're condemned to a life of cold fatalism. I think that's the fear. We come to something like this and we say, well, okay, well, I guess now I'm just a robot clanking around until my batteries run out. No. No, the scriptures reject that. The scriptures, by God's grace, reject that. We make real decisions, and those decisions matter according to the providence of God. In fact, what we see is that we make real decisions, and God works through those decisions. God works through those decisions. That God's story is accomplished through us. Against all odds. Against all natural realities. God's story miraculously, graciously, mercilessly, mercilessly mercifully is accomplished through us. You know, it's interesting. When you go to the ending story where you have this, this, this tale of, of Esau coming in hungry from hunting to, to, to find Jacob cooking, you're getting a reenactment of the garden there. You're getting a reenactment of the garden there. 
The Bible describes Esau, and this is going to come to bear even more fully in the, in the passages ahead, but the Bible describes uh, uh, Esau as just this Shrek bear of a man who lives according to his impulses and according to his emotions. He's a, he's a woodsman. He's a, he's a man's man. He, he makes a decision and he sticks with it. He's decisive. Describes Jacob as, as being one who is, who is cunning, clear-headed, slow to act, slow to move, lying in wait like a serpent, deceptive. And so you have Jacob, perhaps his mom has even told him the oracle that she received, and you have Jacob, and he's been waiting for his chance to have the birthright. He's been waiting for his shot to go and to, to swindle his impulsive emotional brother out of what is rightfully his. And so his brother comes in and his brother is famished. The, the, the term means, I, I'm about to die. I, I'm, I'm so hungry. I, I'm at the verge of, of passing out and needing to be buried. Was he? Probably not. You can go 10 days without food. Now, I don't think this is just him going trophy hunting, you know, like what we're used to, but it, it's hard to imagine that he was actually near death. But Jacob sees the, the impoverished uh, position that Esau is in and he realizes that his brother is vulnerable. That now is the chance for the serpent to strike. Now is the chance for him to swindle him out of his birthright. He said, well, absolutely, brother. I would love to give you some of my bean stew. I would love to help you out and, and to restore your blood sugar to make you less hangry. You're not yourself when you're hungry. But all it's going to cost you is your birthright. Give me your birthright and you can have all the stew that you want. And Esau impulsively, emotionally responds, and he says, I'm going to die. What good is a birthright to me? You can have it. And what we see, what we see is the deceiver, Jacob. His name will come to mean deceiver. Offering a tempting meal. And Esau, and in Esau we have a man like Adam, impulsive and naive, who takes and eats, giving up his birthright as his father's heir. And so what we see is we see the oracle, the oracle coming true, the oracle coming to bear. How? How is it coming true that the, that the older will serve the younger? It's coming through through their decisions. What did Esau do? He did exactly what he wanted to do. What did Jacob do? He did exactly what he wanted to do. They made those decisions. They wanted to do what they did. No one was, was overriding their system and forcing them to do what they didn't want to do. They did exactly what they wanted to do. But God was there in his providence, in his sovereignty, superintending it all to move toward the unveiling of his story, to the fulfillment of his promises and the satisfaction of his oracles. See, God, God, he even can work through our wretchedness. God can even work through our impotence. God can even work through our corruption. In fact, God works through corruption to overcome corruption. God works through that which is meant to shame him, to bring him glory. God works through that which would ordinarily condemn us to bring us into the place of salvation. And this has been the, story, the message of the gospel since the very first gospel message was preached. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, Peter rises and Peter begins to preach so that the people of all different tongues could hear the good news of Jesus Christ and hearing the good news of Jesus Christ, believe and, and have hope. And, and Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, he says, this Jesus 
delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Do you see it? Do you see it? On one hand, Jesus going to the cross is the definite plan of God. It wasn't a reaction by God. It wasn't a plan B by God. It wasn't a, oh my goodness, I can't believe this has happened. What am I going to do plan by God? It was the definite, certain plan of God written from the beginning. He already knows the conclusion, but what does he say about it? What is he, how does that plan accomplish? How does that plan get carried out? He was crucified by the hands of lawless men who were doing exactly what they thought was right, doing exactly what they wanted to do under the freedom of their own choices. They were doing what God had set out before to do, and it was their desires to do it. Except God, God worked through his definite plan. He worked through the corruption of man so that the very next verse reads, and God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You see, it turns out. It turns out that our salvation is not by birth. Salvation is not our birthright. It is by our rebirth. The kingdom is the birthright of the born again. So if you're born again, if you're born again, if you have experienced the rebirth of the good news, you know what the future holds. And now you can live like it. Let's pray together. Hi, I'm Cody Hill. I'm the lead pastor here at Iron City. Thank you so much for connecting with us online. I hope in the days ahead that we'll have an opportunity to connect with you in person. On our website, ironcity.org, you'll see a number of different opportunities that you have to connect with our church and opportunities that we're seeking to engage our community and minister to our church family. I'd like to especially invite you to come and be a part of one of our connection groups that meet at 9 o'clock immediately preceding our Sunday morning worship service. You'll find that we're not a perfect church, but we are a passionate church. We take following Jesus very seriously, but we try not to take ourselves too seriously. So I hope you'll come this Sunday at 1015 and worship with us and let us get to know you a little bit better.